Hello, family. Hello, and welcome to the OCD Family Podcast. Today is not only the first day of December, which, excuse me while I live in denial over here, I swear, I blinked, fam, and the year is almost over. But today is also the fifth and final episode of my second annual OCRD series, that's shorthand for Obsessive Compulsive Related Disorders, where we are welcoming back the one and only Dr. Anthony Pinto to our family table. So settle in, fam, because a whole lot of learning and a whole lot of hope is being served up today, and I can't wait for you to hear more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. Those CD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, so you have to pardon me. I am getting over a cold. So I, I know, I know I'm totally giving off frog vibes over here, but bear with me because I caught up with Anthony earlier this fall when I wasn't under the weather. So I promise there's not too much frogginess in this episode for you. But you know what? Interestingly enough, Spotify sent me my year in review, my wrapped year earlier this week. And the data was very interesting. So I thought I'd just take a minute to share. Now, for approximately 10 straight months, my previous OCPD episode with Dr. Anthony Pinto, which also happened to be part five of my OCRD series last year, ranked as the top episode downloaded of all time since I started the podcast. In fact, Anthony and I have kept up since his interview last year, and I would tell him when we'd be in contact, you know what, you're still number one, believe it or not. People want to know more about OCPD. So I wasn't surprised to find that it is still holding the title for the most downloaded episode of all time here at OCD Family Podcast, along with a highly rated cluster of episodes covering inference-based CBT. But get this, fam. Not only was it my top episode, according to Spotify, it was streamed more than 999% plus of my average episode. I mean, what? What does that even mean? It means, no pun intended, (laughs) if we travel back to grade school when we learned about mean, median, and mode, learning OCPD blew the average episode out of the water by nearly a thousand percent. And my guess is that number only goes up to 999. That's the 999 percent plus. I mean, whoa, that's pretty amazing. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of downloads and of my overall growth. And again, this is just accounting for analytics from Spotify. And I'll remind everyone that OCD Family Podcasts is streamed across all the podcasting platforms, wherever you enjoy listening to your podcasts and YouTube. But at least in terms of Spotify, 68% of you fam, 68% joined us 
at some point throughout 2023 because you started with season one, episode 18, part five, talking about obsessive compulsive personality disorder with Dr. Anthony Pinto. And thanks to our international fam, OCD Family Podcast is being streamed in 46 different countries, which is really crazy exciting. And I, I have to say, I'm just, I'm really humbled, fam. I am. Spotify, even, I mean, Spotify is like coming in hot with all the little stats. I'm telling you. It even had data on how many of the fam here have been spreading about the support and resources that I have the privilege of sharing with you. And guess what? I mean, at this point, it's probably going to come as no surprise that my last OCPD episode was the most shared episode of all time, too. Perhaps that contributes to the nearly 1,000% popularity on this topic, but also my listenership, the fam here, we grew. Overall, 999% plus. I mean, twas a good year to be in the fam. But you know what? This amazing report is so much bigger than just me. It's you, fam. It's our amazing guests, the compassionate colleagues, the dedicated researchers, the mothers and the fathers, sisters and brothers, spouses, partners, and warriors fighting to live to our values when it comes to OCD and OCRD. So a big, huge thank you from the bottom of my heart, fam. I couldn't do any of this without all of you, and we really are better together. So cheers to an amazing year, and to all the new fam that just may be tuning in for the first time, because, hey, if history has taught us anything, it's that OCPD support is needed. So welcome. Welcome to you. I'm so glad you're here. Okay now, fam, I used every drip and then some of my time with Dr. Pinto for today's chat. So while I want to get to it because we just have so much to cover, first, let me just brag on our esteemed guest, Dr. Anthony Pinto, just a bit. Anthony is the director of the Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Center, which is a specialized treatment program for OCD and OCRDs at Zucker Hillside Hospital, which is a part of the Great Northwell Health System in Queens, New York. Amongst the many prestigious titles he holds, like Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Donald and Barbara School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, he also provides evidence-based care for those affected by OCD and OCPD as well as training doctoral and postdoctorate level clinicians in exposure and response prevention, which is also known to this fam as ERP. Dr. Pinto has received a National Institute of Mental Health Career Award to further study OCPD, and he has an extensive publication record in the area of OCD, including symptom subtypes, course, treatment, and the relationship between OCD and OCPD. And today, after we do a drive-through overview for our newer family, going, wait, what? There's, there's an obsessive-compulsive personality disorder? You don't mean no CD? I mean, I have questions. Well, stay tuned, because we'll catch you up to speed. And then we're going to launch into a really interesting Q&A, because you, fam, have questions. And whether you've submitted them to me over the course of this year, asked or responded directly on social media or anywhere else, I've been keeping track. So we'll field as many questions as we can with our international expert on the topic. So let's get to it. 
Welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast today. Anthony, I feel like we're friends now. I have really enjoyed, and one of the things we've corresponded back and forth about is just the overwhelming response of people wanting to learn more and understand more about obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So thank you, first of all, so much for taking the time to come back and join us. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, thank you. No, I was so happy to hear of the the interest in this topic, and I'm I'm glad that, that this information is helpful, and I look forward to extending that that conversation and helping people build more awareness about these traits uh, because they are highly prevalent in the population and particularly prevalent within OCD. Yes, well, such a great point because we can certainly see this show up outside of OCD, but also it is very prevalent within OCD. And so for starters, for a newer fam that may just be tuning in or hearing about this personality disorder and going, what, there's an OCPD? That's confusing, which it is, right? (laughs) People get confused about it all the time. But let's start with just a broad overview. If you would help the family understand what is OCPD? Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Nicole. So so I, I guess I want to just preface by saying personality is that thing that makes us have our own unique stamp on the world, right? And we're all a mixture of different personality traits, right? It starts out early with a particular temperament you see in childhood that then evolves into your style for interacting with the world. Mm-hmm. And we all have, you know, our strengths and weaknesses here. So when we talk about obsessive compulsive personality disorder, we're talking about a cluster of traits that is enduring, meaning it's last over time. And we particularly usually say around uh, five years or more, but it's causing the individual distress or functional impairment. So their way of interacting with the world has become problematic. And the way it becomes problematic is typically in the core features, which are perfectionism. I'm talking now about a maladaptive form of perfectionism where There is a relentless pursuit of these unattainable standards that leads that person not to be able to complete tasks Mm -hmm. or to endure great self-sacrifice in order to complete something. Mm -hmm. And they never feel like it's good enough. And so there's a lot of self-criticism that comes into play with, with perfectionism of this maladaptive form. And that can also lead to decrease in mood and in expressions of anxiety. So perfectionism is a key part of this and rigidity. So these individuals become very resistant to change, rule bound, highly routine oriented. And we all may have our routines, but these individuals hold on to these routines so rigidly that they end up having conflicts with other people if there are changes in their schedule or if they can't be in control of situations. So those are core features. But there are other traits as well that are part of OCPD, like people who are very preoccupied with order and having things arranged a certain way because they like it that way, because they feel like this is the way that is aesthetically pleasing to them, but it takes a lot of their time to get their environment just so. They become very preoccupied with details, so it takes a long time to prepare to do something or to make a purchase. They have difficulty with decision-making, you know, become very devoted to doing their work at the expense of leisure or relationships. They can be hypermoral in terms of judging other people and having conflicts with other people because they're giving unsolicited feedback about the way the world should be. So they can have difficulty, you know, 
discarding items because they think I haven't gotten the full value out of it, or they may have trouble delegating and feeling like I have to be in control of this project. I have to be the one to do all the chores because others are not going to do it my way or the correct way. Right. Uh, they can have difficulty spending money. So this is just a whole range of treats that when you put them together is leading to a block in the person's life. They're not able to move towards the values they want and they chronically feel burdened and behind and like I'm not, I'm not progressing. So that's what people are seeing when they come in to see me. Like I feel stuck. I, I feel like other people are disappointing me. They feel like I'm, I'm not you know, moving forward in my work. I, I can't find satisfying relationships. I'm not able to have any downtime. So, so this is what brings people in. And maybe they're coming in uh, because their primary complaint is about depression or anxiety. But as we then unpack it and do this assessment, we find that there are these problematic traits that we can then address using cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, great points. And I was thinking when you said unsolicited feedback regarding how the world should be, that's like the internet, (laughs) right? There are like so many people weighing in. But we can see this present and somebody might feel some distress in some relationships that are strained where they're trying to offer their help and the feedback they're receiving from others Maybe like I didn't ask you and and quit telling me how to do things. And so there's that tension because the person is really driven. If we look at the function of how uh, OCPD is presenting is really driven by this value driven kind of animus, right? They're reasoning because they're trying to help in their own way. It's trying to get it to this bar of excellence that it could be, right? Right. Yeah. And that's a good a good segue into like, how is this different from OCD, right? Individuals with OCPD have a very particular worldview. They feel like my ways of doing things are a means to an end and it's going to move me towards the, the life I want. But then they get chronically frustrated because it's so time consuming and so taxing on them that they're not able to then live a balanced life. They're not able to progress as opposed to OCD where these individuals have a condition which is egotistonic, meaning they see it as separate from who they are, separate from their personality. The, the people with OCD are uh, suffering from a preoccupation with unwanted thought content, and then they develop these very intricate ritualized compulsions as a way to cope with or to ward off harm, to prevent a bad outcome, to get the right you know, complete feeling. So these are different conditions. Uh, so I just want to emphasize that to your listeners. But there is a relationship between these things. And, and we know from the data that uh, 25%, uh, according to large meta-analytic studies, mm-hmm. 25% of people with OCD will also meet criteria for OCPD. So for the clinicians out there that are listening, if you're treating OCD, you're very likely to see these traits in your OCD patients, or you're likely to see an individual with OCPD presenting to you. And so one of the motivations on my part for coming on this this show and doing trainings Mm -hmm. is to help raise awareness for clinicians, because I I hear all too often that individuals with suffering or their families are saying, we can't find specialists out there that are working in this space. So 
I really want to try to encourage people to, to learn about this and to help train in using CBT for OCPD because OCPD, although it is a personality condition, these traits and these behaviors are changeable with the right forms of treatment if the individual is motivated and if they put in the work. So again, as last time, I want to always strike that hopeful note because I have seen tremendous change in the people I work with. And I, I just want to continue encouraging people to learn because there, there is effective treatment out there. You know, it's such a great point And that motivation. I mean, if you think about just as you were explaining broadly what OCPD is, motivation is very strong for folks that have OCPD. And so if they can harness that into the right resources, yeah. yes, there is so much hope available. But yeah. part of it is us as a community that is doing treatment, as practitioners, as researchers, is recognizing when we're dealing with OCPD. And, and something as simple as looking at, oh, perfectionism, or are they feeling agitated by it or not? These are not ways to diagnostically go, oh, well, then it's obviously OCD or OCPD, because we can see that show up in both. But the function is going to be very different. And like yeah. you said, if it's egodystonic, meaning this is not how I see myself, this is so distant from who I believe myself to be, that is more in our OCD camp when it's egocentonic yeah. and it's like, hey, this is value driven because I want to be the best possible person I can with this. Then we see that that can that can lead more toward OCPD. But again, it's going to take a good evaluation and we can't just take one or two little little traits and say, yes, you have a personality disorder. Yes, you have even a more broad uh, mental health disorder. So I think yeah. that's really great feedback. Yeah, when you're meeting with a, a client for the first time, you, know, you really want to do that thorough assessment, hear their story, and really get a sense as to how is this person's functioning being impacted? And what, based on my conceptualization from this assessment, do I think is the, the driver of this impairment? And so when you get the sense that this person is feeling stuck or is impaired in relationships or work functioning or, or leisure mm -hmm. because of their personality style, that's when you want to really be thinking about OCPD. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and just to uh, piggyback on something else you said, which I think is, uh, is a good point in terms of these are highly driven individuals. The problem is that energy and that drive is being focused in on oftentimes minutia or on, you know, very routinized, rigid practices of doing things. Mm -hmm. And so the shift that's important in CBT is to help them to be able to, to dial that down in areas where they can acknowledge this is not really in line with the life I want, right? So I, I talked last time and just mentioned again about this uh, dimmer switch, right? Like if you think about this as a, a, this metaphor of a dimmer switch, rather than going all in or not at all, like a light switch, like we, we want to think about effort more on a dimmer. So I'm going to turn up my effort in areas that are really important to the life I want and who I want to be. And I have to purposefully turn it down when it's things that are less important, like, you know, 
sending an email or like washing my car or vacuuming or doing the mundane tasks of life, that doesn't require me to put in all that effort. I have to hold back so I have energy in the tank to put into things that I, that I most care about, my relationship, my uh, promotion I'm seeking or spending time even on my own self-care. So being able to help the client decide what are my values and what's important to me and facing each task and saying, is this ultimately something that is important to my values or not? Because then I will have to turn it down. And that's going to be uncomfortable for someone like this because they're going to then feel like, oh, but this, I'm doing a shoddy job here and this is not as good as it could be. But, you know, we're, we're trying to accept that so that we can have the energy available, the effort available for other things that are more important. Yeah, that is such a great point. It is, it's like a budgeting, yeah, more or less, really, of where your energy is going to go. And yeah, I think a CBT has a, a reallocation yeah. of your resources. Yeah, okay. Have, you know, it makes me think of, are you familiar with the spoons theory? Uh, no, tell me. Okay, so <laughs> this is in the autistic community. Yeah. This spoons theory has brought a lot of meaning in a way of communicating the amount of energy that it takes to get certain tasks done. So yeah. maybe you only have a certain amount of spoons of energy for a day. This theory was originated by someone dealing with chronic illness, and mm. she had such incredible fatigue and such incredible difficulty, just a simple task would wipe her out that she came up with this theory called the spoons theory. And I'm going to put all these resources and attach <laughs> this over on this episode's blog. But she talked about, you know, if I only have so many spoons and this takes this many spoons and this takes this many spoons, I can't do it all. Right. So how yeah. do I, how do I do that? And that's a, I, I love the dimmer switch analogy because I think it makes so much sense. The person might be like, I want the dimmer up on everything. And that's yeah. okay to validate like that. That's what you want. That is the energy you want to give everything. But the reality is you only have so much energy. So yeah. how, how are we going to prioritize you getting what really is important for you today for this yeah. goal, for this task, for this project? And where can we slide down on the dimmer in other areas? It doesn't mean right. it has to become unimportant. It just yeah. is a matter of how do I budget that? And I think that is really yeah. A wonderful, concrete way of helping folks go, okay, I don't have to feel like I'm failing on this. I am just putting it in a hierarchy of importance and I want to make sure I have all the focus yeah. for those most Absolutely. important things. Yeah, yeah no, I, lo I love the, the Swoons Theory is very much in line with what I'm talking about because these individuals are chronically saying, I feel burnt out. I feel mentally, physically fatigued because I am, I'm never able to be enough or do enough. And so in, when that dimmer switch is always turned up, that's going to be the, the, the issue. There's going to be burnout, depression, intense self-criticism or loathing. So if you can approach tasks and decide in advance, how much am I allocating towards this? Then when the outcome is average yeah. uh and you know you're you're accepting that because mm -hmm. that's how you had allocated resources in advance and with the intention to reallocate them to things that are of more value to you 
Right. So if we think about it in terms of like expectation budgeting, right? Mm -hmm. Then yeah. it's not to say that those that are not getting as much attention don't matter to you. And I think it can be really validating for folks that are like, but I want to be able to give my all to all the things, right? But if we have the preset expectation, like we're going to only get so far in this, but that will also allow us to do this. And right now this is the priority. Then it, it brings a strength to kind of that motivation and being able to do tasks to your ability because you have set up that hierarchy and you go in with the expectation of knowing, okay, this is where this stops, but this is where I get to focus all my energy. Yeah. And I'll say that I think one of the main pieces of feedback that I've been so grateful that we were able to achieve, Anthony, in our last yeah. episode was that I had heard this feedback from a multitude of sources. This is one of the first times I've heard OCPD not just being this negative, 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 like shame-filled yeah. thing. It's like, no, the, your drive, your motivation, there are so many different strengths that you behold, and that can be harnessed into a way that leads to less distress for you because, yeah, there isn't enough time yeah. in the day. OCPD yeah. or not, Anthony and I were talking before we started recording of like, oh my gosh, there's not enough time in the day, right? And so yeah. just being able to have some hope and some understanding, even that expectation of I can feel less distress and still be myself and I don't have to change that, but I can reroute some of those expectations, I think is such yeah. a positive and validating message for folks. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think starting out uh, in therapy with someone who's presenting with OCPD, it's, it's so important that the clinician honor and validate mm -hmm. who they are, right? Because we're talking about a personality that has been built over years and it's an accumulation of like their own life history and story. Mm -hmm. And it's, this is not about changing the core of who they are. It's about celebrating their strengths, but modifying their approach so that we can remove the obstacles, this fixation on details and this chronically overdoing of things so that we can remove the obstacles towards the life they want to have more balance and feeling like I am moving in these directions. And so it could even another metaphor is to think about a pie chart, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you know, you know, if I ask you, Nicole, like, you know, what are all the slices that makes Nicole Morris? You know, there's going to be a, a whole bunch of them, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe there are slices there that you're not addressing because so much of your time and energy is going into like these dominant slices. So part of the work is also setting boundaries around some of those slices. So like, for example, work, which for a lot of my patients ends up becoming the dominant slice. We do want to add other things there, like perhaps a romantic relationship or perhaps like more community involvement or involvement in your faith. We're going to then have to really put some boundaries around work so that you can then make some of these shifts. And so a common example of that would be the person who's chronically overworking and returning to work in the late hours of the night mm -hmm. and then missing the opportunity to spend with a partner. And so making a decision via willingness that tonight I'm going to shut down my laptop, I'm going to put it away, and I'm going to, you know, approach the partner about spending time together 
even though I'm going to be very anxious and guilty and feel like I should be doing this and I'm going to fall further behind and mm -hmm. my boss is going to judge me or you know, all the shoulds. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. But I'm just putting myself in this place to spend time with my partner and I'm going to accept all of the discomfort that's going to come with that because I want to move towards nurturing this other part of me, this relationship and, and nurturing being with my partner. So that's an example here of how, you know, sometimes these values can come in conflict uh, and yeah. being able to then make decisions based on what you want to, the life you want to move towards. Yeah, I think often discomfort people use as a litmus test on whether they're being successful or not. And it doesn't define you. Your discomfort doesn't define you. And yeah. so even knowing that, giving yourself permission yeah. To say, I'm going to accept some discomfort here to be able to do this fully to the extent that I really do want to carry this out over here, whether it's a relationship or a house project that you just want to get done and you've right. been meaning to get to it, but all these other things you have to get to as well. So it can be a range of things, but I think through the process of doing treatment, because sometimes people are like, I don't even have time for the things that I need to do. How would I have time for treatment? But sometimes doing treatment is even kind of that ability to give yourself some grace and self-compassion and go, you know what, it is all important, but if I only have so much energy, if I only have so many pie slices or so many spoons, what can I do today? What's going to be the importance, the priority today, and what is going to be a little down here? And just because I feel discomfort doesn't mean I'm failing. It just means, yeah, I wish, I wish there were more time that I could do that more fully. And that's okay. Yeah. 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 In this treatment, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, whether we're talking about OCD or whether it's OCPD, inherently in the learning, yeah, the experiential learning is at the core of this treatment. Yeah. Inherent in that is being able to accept the discomfort that comes with behavior change, right? So in that discomfort, in learning that I can be uncomfortable and I can be tense, I can experience these negative emotions and I can still do things that I want to do that are in line with my values. That is so critical yeah. to this treatment. And so, uh, you know, I, I try to prepare people for that because unlike other forms of therapy, this does require the person's investment in practicing new behaviors, taking some chances, going out of your comfort zone, and of course, being uncomfortable as a way to learn that I can cope, I can handle, and I, you know, and I can actually hold on to this discomfort while I do something that I care about. Yeah. And to that end, I think whether we're talking OCPD or OCD, wow. I think one of the silver lining results from struggling through these different disorders, and often it's hard to think of positives because it can, it can feel so distressing. But realizing that I can still do great things, I am still worthy, I am still contributing and have a lot to offer, even if I feel discomfort, even yeah. when I don't have certainty, even when and, and realizing that that, again, it doesn't define you, but learning to tolerate that is an advantage in the sense of everybody struggles with holding discomfort in one way or another, right? And so while I would never wish it upon somebody to be able to achieve that, I think yeah. that it's a 
beautiful silver lining that we can tug at as we approach and go through treatment and recovery. And so I I think there is a lot of hope and I really, I really love that we're able to have these conversations and normalize that for folks because I think people just feel a lot of shame and and judgment over mental health disorders at large, but personality disorders. People were like, oh, personality disorder. That just sounds ugh, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think the, the self-compassion piece is critical when you're dealing with conditions that involve shame, the, 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 the realization of like the common humanity of being able to experience suffering, to be kind to oneself, to, to use mindfulness, to be aware of your, yourself and your body, that's so important. And I, and I think that what you're raising here in terms of like the stigma around personality disorders, I, I think has really hurt, unfortunately, causes like research and treatment development for OCPD because there's this misconception about OCPD that it is this unchangeable thing some of the other misconceptions that I hear a lot is, oh, but OCPD, it must be so rare. But we know that is actually not the case at all. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, the the studies vary, but the prevalence in the community ranges from 2 to 8%, depending on the type of instrument you use to assess. Yeah. Um, so these traits are out there. They're going to be in your family and your friends, maybe in yourself and, and certainly in your patients because we know the prevalence is even higher in clinical samples. And then the other misconception about OCPD is that it doesn't affect functioning and that these people are not actually impaired and that these are very high functioning people. But mm-hmm. we know also from, from the, the data that's out there that this is associated with poorer quality of life and poorer psychosocial functioning in line with OCD. Like I did a study where I compared these conditions head to head and there was no difference in the functional impairment and the quality of life impairment. Wow. So so there, there is the functional impact, you know, and we know that OCPD affects relationship satisfaction as well as like this sense of well-being and feeling like you're moving forward in your life. And then the, the final misconception is also this, which we already addressed, but there's this unfortunate confusion with OCD where clinicians are kind of lumping it all in one bucket. Yeah. And, and for many reasons, one, uh, the names are very similar, but there's also the way we talk about OCD when we use it as an adjective, we're talking about like, he's so OCD, she's so OCD. It's like this right. fastidious, meticulous way, which we know that that's actually more in line with OCPD. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of work to be done to, to raise awareness. And so we're doing some of that work right now by helping people understand this better. But I, I also want to take a, a moment to talk about this new initiative. Yeah. Uh, so there is this new organization mm-hmm. called OCPD Foundation, which is really trying to raise awareness and ultimately make resources available to people, including treatment resources. So listeners can check out their website. It's very easy to remember, ocpd.org. Yeah. And so ocpd.org is this new website for, it has a collection of articles, videos, podcasts, links to lots of information. It has a message board, forums. It has information about online support groups. It also is, I partnered uh, with this organization because I, I want to raise awareness as well. Uh, but I also want to make tools available to clinicians and to individuals. So 
OCPV.org now hosts the measure I, I talked about last time called the POPs, the mm-hmm. Pathological Obsessive Compulsive Personality Scale. Mm-hmm. I developed this self-report measure with colleagues as a way to assess in a way that is easy for clinicians because it is a self-report. It, it gives a treat profile as well as a severity score. So the POPs is now available on OCPD.org. So individuals can go there, complete the measure anonymously and for free and get a report immediately after completing it, which they can then bring to their treatment provider for treatment planning and can also be used during treatment as a way to measure progress. So I wanted to make people aware of that. The, the site is continuously being expanded and eventually will include a directory of, of therapists who have expressed interest and experience in treating OCPD. Yeah. So that's something that's very much needed because so many times I hear from people who have trouble accessing care. So there's a way to go with OCPD. I'm encouraged by looking at how the OCD Foundation has done this and they have you know, really done a lot of work in terms of raising awareness about OCD and making resources and treatment available. So hopefully OCPD Foundation can follow that same path and ultimately provide those resources. That's excellent. And I hear from clinicians all the time. I need to kind of figure out what to do with this and talk about the POPs and how helpful that can be. And so I love that there is a, a direct place where people can go and learn more about that. We should also mention that at Northwell, the OCD center that you run, and I'm hearing that Northwell's expanded quite a bit. So Northwell mm-hmm. has gained a, a lot of traction and is providing a lot of care to yeah. folks. And so Northwell also, you guys have these resources available. But I do love that OCPD Foundation is really getting some traction because it it's really making then a name and some awareness for it itself outside. Because again, you can have this outside of OCD. You can have 25% yeah. of co-occurrence, but you can also have it in a silo on its own. You can have it w- with other mental health disorders. And so just yeah. having a go-to resource is so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in terms of where the program that I oversee here, the Northwell Health OCD Center, we treat individuals with either primary OCD, primary OCPD, or a combination where they present with both. And so this is a specialized outpatient program where we have treatment services that are tailored for these individuals. We provide exposure and response prevention for individuals with OCD, cognitive behavioral therapy services for those with OCPD, as well as like the combination. We provide both individual therapy, group therapy. We have groups for ERP, groups for maintenance for people who have completed their individual therapy. We have a family group that is focused on family accommodation. And I know you're going to have Dr. Christine Durso talk more about that in Mm -hmm. a future episode. And we have currently two OCPD groups running, which has been a really gratifying experience for me because I run those groups where we have individuals who have identified OCPD as a major problem. And they're now coming together with other individuals Mm -hmm. who have these traits, who can understand their, what they're going through. And so those are cognitive behavioral therapy groups. So, so yeah, the, the, the Northwell Health OCD Center offers evidence-based treatment, accepts uh, all kinds of insurance, uh, both private and government insurance. And so we're making evidence-based treatment accessible 
Yeah. Uh, we're also a training site for psychology and psychiatry. We have externs, interns, postdocs, and psychiatry residents. And so I just want to shout out to John Christman, who's the psychiatrist here. He's been at this program since the start, and he does such a great job with the medication management and the training of our residents. So he's a real a big part of the success of this program. And in terms of what you mentioned, the growth, when I came to Northwell in mm -hmm. 2013, I was the only psychologist in this program. And now we have six psychologists. So in this last 10 years, we have really been supported by the hospital in growing this, this great resource. Wow. So yeah, we really value providing treatments, providing training for clinicians of the future, yeah. but also doing research to help understand these conditions. So, so I feel really excited about the work we're doing here. Yeah, as, as you should. This is it's making an impact. And we see that you are one of the unique programs doing it. And it's why having the OCPD Foundation be able to grow and for clinicians and practitioners to get a better working understanding of this, because it's not just happening in your area, but there are so few providers that are really knowledgeable about it. And I, I think it's so important. So I appreciate you sharing that brings us to a fun portion of our show today. We're going to be doing some Q&A. We get to ask the expert, Dr. Anthony Pinto, and I've gotten a collection of questions. We'll get through as many as we can get through because I was showing uh, Anthony before this, there's a lot of interest in wanting to know more, which I think is really exciting because this is what needs to happen. We need to be able to have conversations and go search for the research-backed answers mm -hmm. and then be able to increase and expand awareness. So I love that. So thank you for being game for our Q&A here. Oh, yeah, no, I love this. I, I, I haven't seen these questions, so I'm excited to see uh, what, what you were able to pull together. Yes, yes. Okay, so. Wait, remind me where these questions came from. So these came from a, a variety of places. People submit and over the last year have submitted different OCPD questions to me. I will say that our last episode on OCPD has been one of the most downloaded of all time episodes from my entire catalog of podcasts. So there have been a lot of interesting discussions and questions that have bridged from that. And so I receive form submissions through ocdfamilypodcast.com. I get messages on social media. I've had conversations where different, especially practitioners, have also been asking some really good questions. And so I have some from our great field of colleagues here. And then also we've gotten some from OCPD hashtags in terms of questions that come up and people often will comment. Maybe a therapist is giving out a, an interesting uh, infographic on OCD versus OCPD. And they're like, but what about this? And often those questions go unanswered. And so right. there's a collection from a whole host of places. And I, I, I'm really excited to be able to go through this because this is, this is from the fam. These are your burning questions of what you want to know about more. So. We're going to start off with uh, a question that I got through the website. A person was sharing that he believed his friend is suffering from OCPD and potentially from OCD as well. The OCD feels like something that he can manage, that he can deal with, but he's really struggling with OCPD because he feels like his friend gets very agitated with him. He sees her get agitated with her kids. 
if things just don't go a particular certain way. And before knowing what OCPD was, he thought it was just like she was having an OCD response, but about other people's actions, like distress about their actions or reactions. And so that was the way he was conceptualizing it. And so if anything is outside the alignment of her way of thinking about something, he just feels like automatically there's some aggravation there. And so he wondered, what can I do with this? Like, this is a hard dynamic that's coming up. And so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you to this listener for that question. This is a, a good opportunity for me to talk about two different ways that OCPD can present. Because as I talked earlier about the way you arrive at this OCPD diagnosis is by a combination of various traits. And so people have different clusters of these traits. And so I have found it helpful to think about it in terms of style types uh, or presentation style types. So what I typically see is people may present in more anxious ways where they tend to be really self-critical, indecisive, more likely to be procrastinators and have trouble managing time and yeah. difficulty in terms of like over-explaining and having a hard time weeding out extraneous information and have like a very detailed way of going through things like reading or watching a streaming show because they have, they're afraid they're going to miss some important detail. Mm -hmm. So that's one style, this more predominantly anxious style. Mm -hmm. But the other style that your listener is referring to here is a controlling style. So this is a person who is very resistant to change in routines and becomes excessively rule bound and this is the way things have to be. And that person then tends to be very critical of other people, judgmental when their standards are not being met, mm -hmm. outwardly critical, uh, as opposed to the anxious style, which is more inwardly. And so they have more difficulty relating to uh, sharing emotions and are more prone, as this person is describing, to anger outbursts when they feel like their sense of control is threatened. So, you know, I think it's important to think about these different styles because when you are assessing for this in a new client, you want to think about how to plan the treatment based on the style that's that's predominant. And it doesn't mean that person is only fitting in one of these styles. You can have varying styles in different contexts, yeah. uh, but usually somebody has a more like a predominant one. This person, I would say, is more of a predominant controlling style. Yeah. So in terms of what could happen in treatment, like this person here, I would say as part of the CBT is going to need an emphasis on emotion regulation. Mm -hmm. The person described here is becoming highly reactive to things not going her way, mm -hmm. highly reactive to changes or, you know, interruptions in her normal routine. And so that is leading to these eruptions of criticism or anger. Mm -hmm. So I would in therapy, work with this person to get a better read on what is happening to you in your body as a precursor to these eruptions, right? And it usually starts off with some physiological signal. And for that person, it might be like, you know, this tension in my chest or a headache feeling or a jitteriness. So I would work with her to get a better read on what's happening because if that signal, that aversive body feeling mm -hmm. is something the person wants to get rid of. Right. And so she, over time, 
has learned that if I lash out and control people, then I'm able to settle down this feeling. But it's leading to other problems, including like relationship problems and yeah. chronic conflict. So, so we would have to work with her to better understand those signals so that she can then use a different approach. And starting off with trying to ground herself, pause, we might use some DBT skills in this case to do a reset in a situation where she's feeling so overwhelmed. But ultimately, we're going to then have to give her new skills so that she can work towards lowering the reactivity, being able to know when she's in the midst of a storm, stay connected and present, turn into her body, and then do something that we agree is going to be more adaptive and healthier for her. And so so trying to instill healthier responses and work on making that more of her go-to response as opposed to the lashing out. So, so that would be the therapeutic approach to a person like this. As far as the listener, how does he or she help as a friend? Right. Um, you know, it would be encouragement of seeking out help, providing educational resources about these traits, but also providing support and validation, right? And so like if, you know, and I know this is very difficult for loved ones, particularly romantic partners, because if you're living with somebody with this controlling style, you often can feel bullied and yeah. you can feel like, you know, you're living under like some tyranny. So being able to connect with that person and being able to voice, this is how I feel when you react to me this way. Mm -hmm. It hurts. And I know that you're hurting when you're doing that. You're feeling really overwhelmed. And so what, what can we do in a relationship, whether it's romantic or platonic, so that you can take that time out to remember your skills that you're working on in therapy, and then we can come back together and we can discuss it. So th those are some strategies for the family or friend. But I would really encourage this the listener to try to get this friend into CBT. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking as you were talking, like often the loved ones can feel the effects of the inflexibility or the the kind of habit-based routine of how someone's coping with this situation. And often they're like, I need them to be more flexible. But then also folks are coming into that probably already burned out from the yeah. response from the person suffering with OCPD. And so Sometimes there can also be an inflexibility as a reciprocal effect of like, no, I can't deal with this anymore. Like, you've got to yeah, stop that. Yeah. Right. And that yeah. ends up shutting both parties down because they're like, I can't stop that. And the other person's like, right. Yeah, right? The significant other uh, or family member may need their own outlet you know, or therapy to cope because, you know, living with somebody who is this controlling style is very taxing. And then that individual, the family member or loved one, is going to need some resources towards building up their own self-care, creating boundaries, yeah. you know, healthy separation so that they're not feeling chronically like they have to walk on eggshells. Yeah, such a great point because I've heard the feedback too, even from a client before of like, okay, I feel like they're gaslighting me. So it, where's the line between them just being emotionally abusive and them just having yeah. OCPD? What would you say to I that? Yeah, right. I think that a person, an individual can have a mental health condition like OCPD, but it does not give permission or allow you violating somebody else's personal boundaries 
or coercing them or, you know, impacting their rights. And so I think uh, in a case with somebody who's in this controlling style where they are consistently violating other people's boundaries because of their need to have things their way, you know, there's going to need to be work to allow the family member to create better boundaries and not only setting those boundaries, but maintaining them and saying, when you talk to me this way, I will disengage and I'm no longer going to create an environment that accommodates your need for rigidity. And so, so that, no, that can be really difficult. And in some cases it may require for the health of this family member that they create physical distance, but having that person, the family member gets support for creating those boundaries for prioritizing your own needs is, is going to be important and getting help, uh, you know, seeing a therapist can be very important in those situations. Yeah, that's really helpful because, you know, as much as I was just talking about how there can be reciprocal inflexibility when it comes to your safety, and we're going to draw different lines in terms of our boundaries on what feels, because we want to validate if somebody crosses a certain line, my line might be different than yours, but what it's very important for our sense of safety that if we feel verbally assaulted or unsafe in a situation, there's no flexibility you need to have around your safety. You get to have that boundary and say, no, this is a non-negotiable. So I think right. that's a really great point. And we see people with OCPD often have really great insight when they think about it, when they're able to zoom out. And that, that's different generally than a controlling nature, somebody that is going to try and use power and control to their own gain, to their own coping, to elevate themselves when they feel distressed. It's not to say that it can't co-occur there, but it can co-occur anywhere, right? Yeah. And so just being mindful yeah. of safety is certainly important there. Yeah. I mean, we, we just spend time talking about this controlling style, but like the other style is this anxious style. And so... What does a family member or significant other do if you're living with somebody who has this anxious style of OCPD? And that's a different form because it's not going to be so much of this like boundary pushing, but that this individual who is self-critical and had time management problems, you know, would benefit from the family member being in line with the treatment and maybe providing some at-home coaching or providing accountability and reminding them of the things like the dimmer switch and saying, you're spending a long time doing this thing that we have discussed is not ultimately so important to your values. So I want to encourage you to turn that dimmer switch down and set some time parameters for doing this less important task. So that a family member of somebody with an anxious style could be very helpful in terms of the coaching, the accountability, also removing accommodations that they may provide. Maybe they're taking on tasks for that person because they're chronically behind in uh, in their tasks. And so maybe this person is trying to ease the burden on the person with this anxious style, but ultimately is not going to be helping them to learn to cope. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it leads well into our next question because we were asked, what are some strategies for family members? And you've given a really nice picture really for these two presentation styles in terms of how family members or loved ones, romantic partners can partner with their loved ones suffering from OCPD. Before we recorded too, we were talking about family accommodation and how that shows up within OCD and OCPD. Can we describe what 
family accommodation would mean within OCPD? Right. Yeah. So family accommodation is an important construct for people to be aware of when they're doing CBT. And it's a, it's a construct that's been researched within OCD internationally. And there's a, a, a website that is hosted by Yale a University that has all the different versions of the family accommodation scale, which can be completed by the, the family member, by the, the individual sufferer, as well as a child version and it, translations of the measure since it's being used internationally. So family accommodation refers to behaviors by a family member in the OCD context, which is like participating in compulsions, facilitating compulsions, moving responsibilities that the sufferer is not doing because of OCD. So we know less about family accommodation in the context of OCPD because it just hasn't been studied, but it also refers to facilitating and maybe being directly involved in that person with OCPD's way of managing the world. Mm -hmm. And so it might mean the person with OCPD insists that the cleaning routine is like very intense or things have to be redone because they're not good enough. Or it could mean giving the person with OCPD more time to do their routines and so the family member is taking on other responsibilities that that person with OCPD would normally be doing if they didn't have all of these methodical routinized behaviors. So, you know, it, it, there, there's certainly similarities between yeah. how this shows up in OCD versus OCPD, but it's another thing for clinicians to be aware of, like, what is the environment like at home that might be allowing or maintaining these behaviors? Yeah, that's a really great point. And it's something I will say to clients, and and we've talked about it here on the podcast as well, is sometimes just zooming out. If you're like, I resent that they tell me that I have to load the dishwasher this way. And it's yeah. like, you resent it. That's a big feeling. And they're like, yeah, I don't know what to do about it. And it's like, so, I mean, don't load it that way if it bothers you, right? Right. But that'll yeah. bother them. Okay, well, it's bothering you. Your feelings matter too. Like you can still say no hard feelings, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do on how I load the dishwasher. Yeah. 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 It's best to have those conversations in the context of treatment, if that's possible. Yeah. So you can make an agreement about if the loading of the dishwasher is like a point of conflict, let's work together for the sake and health of our relationship to have the patient or the sufferer be willing to accept that the dishwasher is going to be loaded in a way that is not their way, but I'm doing it. I'm choosing to step back from the dishwasher because I want this relationship to be less conflict-laden and I want to develop more flexibility about allowing other people to take on household chores. And it goes kind of to that, that old adage of choose your battles, right? It's not that this doesn't matter to you and it's okay that it matters to you. No shame, but you yeah. can put the dimmer switch down here because this yeah. battle over here is going to be a lot more important in terms of how my loved one responds or how this routine goes for us. And so actively choosing, being proactive and saying, I am going to turn down the dimmer and having that contract that the loved one is going to say, and I'm not going to go out of my way to piss you off, but also I am not going to be so litigious on how I load the dishwasher. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's this goes back to like the boundaries conversation. Like I'm not going to redo things. I have my own judgment about how I want things done. Yeah. And 
when you tell me to redo these things, it hurts me and being able to express those feelings. So yeah, those are, those are like really important conversations to have yeah. uh, in, in the context of relationships. Yeah. When in doubt, communicate it out. I mean, it just even, it's not going to solve everything, but we can, it's kind of like how you can't necessarily read tone in texts or emails and it's like, it can get you really fluffed up. And if you actually had just talked about it, you would realize like, this wasn't a thing, but it became this thing. Like, yeah. even if we don't see eye to eye, trying to communicate about it is going to be really, really important. And that's also where treatment can be a great ally in helping facilitate both of you feeling heard. Both of yeah. you ultimately want to feel heard. And often when we start talking over one another, it's because mm -hmm. I, you're not getting it. I'm not feeling understood. And now I'm getting defensive. And we just get that dynamic going on. So having a treatment provider partner with you in that is really helpful. Yeah, and being able to say the, the health of this relationship is more important to me than being right. Yeah. I mm. mean, if only folks, right? <laughs> the fans, <family's> like, oh <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> I think we could all like we can all benefit from thinking that way. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The next question was a two-part question, came from uh, one of our colleagues here in the field. And so her question first was, how does the treatment approach for OCPD differ from mm -hmm. OCD treatment? So that's the first right. part. Sure. Yeah. So when we talk about first-line treatments for OCD, we have like medication options, typically serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and we have exposure and response prevention as our, our first line. And, you know, of course, I know you've done uh, shows on uh, inference-based uh, CBT mm -hmm. and as, uh, as another option. We have ACT, which has now been infused within ERP. So we have a great set of tools. You know, they're not perfect and they're always being refined. And, and hopefully we will continue to come up with better options. For OCPD, you know, the treatment development has really lagged behind. The, the evidence base for medications for OCPD is extremely limited. And what we believe just based on the limited data out there is that SSRIs might be helpful for anxious presentations or for depressive related symptoms to OCPD. So that, that's something that a prescriber could consider. When it comes to therapy, again, a lack of evidence-based studies, you know, they have not been randomized controlled trials, which are necessary in order to randomly assign people to different conditions so we could see what has more efficacy. But there have been CBT approaches that have been developed for perfectionism, which have been tested. And so we can use those uh, approaches and expand them out to OCPD. So ACT and CBT for perfectionism, there are really great manuals out there that I personally have integrated into my own practice, mm -hmm. as well as like for this controlling style, as I said before, you do need to like consider fusing in emotion regulation strategies. And uh, I also want to mention that there is radically open DBT, which is a formulation of DBT for the overcontrolled and Tom Lynch and his whole team have done uh, a great job in training in that area. So how the treatment approaches, you know, differ. So both of these, the, you know, the therapy approaches here basically rely on experiential learning at the core. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's how they're similar. And exposures in OCD are very much like 
the kinds of behavioral experiments that I would do with my OCPD patients. So I think the nuance in how you do it is more in terms of how you frame the behavioral work in OCPD. So I think framing an exposure as an experiment when it comes to OCPD is going to help you get better buy-in, right? Because you're not trying to lecture and convince people about the way you're doing things is too time-consuming or too detail-oriented. We're going to frame it as like, let's try it out in this other way. So mm -hmm. having a curious style as a therapist and saying, Let, let's see how it goes. Let's, what are the standards that are holding you back and how can we dial them back and practice doing it a different way. So you frame it more in terms of an experiment. You do a lot of emphasis on willingness, you know, this decision to endure the negative side effects of a new behavior because you want what's on the other side of it, which is like this value-based life. So there are a lot of commonalities, I would say. And if you have a presentation of OCD with OCPD, mm -hmm. it may not be possible to differentiate which one is which in, in all the different aspects of it. So you're still going to be doing your ERP, but you're going to infuse it with more emphasis on flexibility and willingness and these behavioral experiments. So again, the, the, the bottom line is the behavioral work is very similar, but we package it differently when you're dealing with a personality condition, because we're talking about removing obstacles in your life, not changing who you are. So so we want to uh, be able to, again, honor and validate where the person is and offer a new direction for how they spend their time and energy so that they can have more balance and more fulfillment in their life. Yeah, great point, because value driven, you know, especially if we're thinking about so for fam that is tuning in and new to the acronym ACT, that's acceptance and commitment therapy. And I, I generally... I really think of ACT when I think of value-driven. They don't own value-driven as a phrase, but it's it's certainly pretty inherent to that model. But when we think of value-driven and, and egocentonic values, OCPD, we're, we're going to see a lot more of those egocentonic really desires to do well and to complete something or to have something function in a certain way. And so it isn't our place to be like, well, your value shouldn't be this, right? Like, and, and that's how it can feel sometimes, the feedback mm -hmm. to people going, oh, but this is important to me. And so that's going to be distinctive in the sense of you're really nurturing, yes, this is important to you. And it's really hard to feel this discomfort around something not being completed, but there's not enough time in the day. Where can we dim down and then go max on the yeah. things that count for you? Um, and so the treatment is going to differ in that sense because there's certainly a piece of learning how to tolerate and accept the distress within OCD treatment, but the function is different. It's very egodystonic, and, and we're just trying to learn that just because I have a thought or just because I think a certain thing doesn't mean I am this bad person, I'm a monster, I could hurt somebody, as an example. So I think those are really great points and a great question. And then that same clinician one of her clients asked, and I think this is a great question, where do you draw the line between a personality disorder like OCPD and someone's genuine personality? Yeah, yeah. I think that, that hits on what we were talking about before when you are meeting a client for the first time who's bringing up some of these personality traits or you're assessing and you're picking up on these traits. You know, we want to always really you know, honor, again, validate like where that person is, like your uniqueness, what makes you individually and uniquely you. 
and what is your personality and your particular like stamp on on the world versus a personality disorder has to have functional impairment and clinically significant distress associated with these traits. Mm -hmm. So that's where the person is going to say, this is how I am, but they can acknowledge I feel stuck. I feel burnt out. I'm not able to progress. My relationships are suffering. I can't make decisions. So the distinction of a disorder is where this collection of traits is preventing the person from moving forward in their life, reaching goals, moving towards their values. So, so that, that stuckness is so important to calling something a disorder. And the reason we're using that word disorder is because disorder then lends itself to treatment approaches and ways of intervening. And so we're not looking to pathologize people's personality. We're saying your style has become problematic in that it's causing you to get stuck. Uh, so, so that's the distinction in my mind. Yeah, that's a really, uh, it's a great point because both are genuine and it's kind of this continuum. They're not separate. Yeah. For some folks, they might be like, eh, I don't have time for this, but that's fine. I don't care. And for some folks, they're going to be like, I, I, I want this, but also I need to do this and this feels important. And I am having a hard time with being able yeah. to access this set of values over here. And so yeah. in a lot of ways, one in the same, your personality or the personality disorder, does it get to the point where it's impacting how you feel you're able to function or meet your goals in other areas of life? Okay, then then we say we can help try to make shifts towards this other value-driven area you want to access as well. It's not that we're just going to stamp out personality over here because obviously that's not helping you. Like, no, no, that's who you are and it's genuine. It's who you are. Yeah. 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 And the treatment is not about like uh, turning you into somebody that is mediocre or doesn't care about anything. It's, it's, a, it's we're going to continue to honor what you believe to be important, but help you to manage your time and energy in a way that is going to move you forward uh, where you're not going to feel stuck. And so, you know, as you said before, the, the traits that make up OCP are on a continuum. We call them dimensions because they go from adaptive forms to maladaptive forms. And so, you know, when we talk about a disorder, we have a collection of maladaptive levels of these traits. And so it's important to look at these traits across our patients, even if they don't actually have a categorical diagnosis, but maybe they have problematic levels of these traits. Great, great thoughts. Thank you so much for expanding on that. And I think that was a great question. So thank you to the person that asked that. Okay, another question. This is a biggie. <laughs> There's lots mm. of different examples. We can glance through them, of course. But here is the overall question. And this is from a clinician in the field as well. Any thoughts on the overlap of OCPD and neurodivergent traits or differentiating OCPD from ADHD and autism? So when we think of like routines, lists, preferences for sameness, etc., that will help support nervous system regulation so they're going to have this regulatory function as a part of neurodivergence that's congruent with their value system that's congruent with their way of coping and so when is it if i'm understanding the the question correctly when is this ocpd and when is this just a part of how we are processing if we are neurodivergent and she mentioned i see a lot of items on the pops that could attribute 
to OCPD or an autistic ADHD. So just yeah. trying to get a framework and it might be both, right? And so that's the, that's the one thing that kind of popped out yeah. to me first. Like, well, yeah, maybe it is both. But would love to hear your thoughts on that, Anthony. Yeah, this, this question I, I get often. We may have even touched on it in the last episode. Yeah. So OCPD and autism, autism spectrum disorder. And, and when we say ASD, that's a, that's a big range of individuals, you know, with a, a range of functioning. And so, so I think some common threads here is this reliance on routines, on certain like methodical rigid behaviors. So rigidity is a common construct between OCPD and autism spectrum. So again, when you're differentiating, uh, I always try to go back to doing a, a functional analysis of the behaviors, right? So what what is the person ultimately trying, what's driving and motivating these behaviors? You know. Uh, we talked about in OCD, the driver of the compulsions is to ward off a bad outcome, to, you know, to create a sense of completeness. In OCPD, the, it's ultimately, you know, a belief that this is the right way to do things and this is going to help me reach this particular goal. It causes frustration, it becomes really time consuming, and so it, it interferes in their functioning. Yeah. In ASD, the behaviors might have the, the rigid behaviors may have some soothing quality to them. So like in some cases, it could be like more of like a stim kind of behavior. So, mm -hmm. so I think you do want to like better understand it. And as you said, it gets complicated because people can overlap in these things. So the other thing when you're considering a differential with ASD is really to do that very careful developmental history to see if there have been some delays in terms of uh, developmental milestones, you're not typically going to see that with somebody that's in a, a more pure OCPD presentation. And then the, the social functioning is another hallmark in the impaired interpersonal functioning is a hallmark of ASD in a way that's different than OCPD because there's going to be more profound interpersonal deficits in ASD, whereas my experience in OCPD, those individuals, yes, they can have difficulty with like empathizing. They might be more emotionally over-controlled. They tend to have an intact ability to read and to identify emotions in other people. That piece might be particularly impaired in somebody with ASD. And there's going to be a general greater sense of loss in social situations in ASD as opposed to somebody with OCPD. But again, you could have overlaps. It gets complicated. So, so that would be my read on trying to differentiate OCPD and a ASD. In terms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that could, that's another thing to try to pull apart because as I, I think I may have mentioned last time, mm -hmm. sometimes you have people who are presenting for OCPD treatment who have been placed on a stimulant because they have told a prescriber that I can't get anything done. And so one of the hypotheses for this individual might be like, oh, maybe it's because of attentional problems. And so that is a, also a tricky differential because you can have people with ADHD who have difficulties regulating attention, meaning like they can't pull themselves out of something. And that can look like OCPD when you have perfectionism and you feel like something is not good enough. They have difficulty pulling themselves out of something. And so 
I think you want to get a better read on attentional problems. I think the, the more inattentive type, that's going to look different than OCPD. Yeah. But when it comes to this like over-attention piece, that part can be particularly challenging in terms of differential. Yeah, we did talk about both autism and we talked about ADHD during our last episode. So it, to expand upon that too, please, fam, feel free to go back and catch that first conversation. But what I will say, and I have autistic children, one of the things I notice, and, and so I'd love your feedback on this, Anthony, if I'm kind of yeah. thinking about this in a correct way. But one of the things I've noticed is with an OCPD and the person asking the question had put up some examples from the POPs measure. So I'm just yeah. going to, you know, pick, pick one, right? Like uh, I get upset when my day schedule is disrupted. Yes, that can that can show up in OCPD, that can show up in autism, that can show up in ADHD, that can show up in life period, right? Yep. But for the person struggling with OCPD, what I would expect is around certain value-driven things that are deemed important to the individual person, they are going to feel upset when that schedule is disrupted. So if they're doing something and taking the time and want to see that completed and that's disrupted, they might get upset, right? But in general, when things get stopped short of being finished, does that bother them across the board? Probably doesn't bother them in certain things like a show they didn't care about or this, that or the other thing. It's probably not generalizing in every area about always being upset if something isn't completed. It's around these value-driven things, right? Yeah. For somebody that, and this is just from my experience with my kids, is it can get a little more generalized across the board. So even if it's something they don't like, if they didn't expect the change and there's a really quick transition, even if it's like going from something non-preferred to preferred, it might be hard because switching gears and getting the focus and shifting through the transition, unless they knew about it ahead of time and you're like, by the way, in five minutes we're doing this which can be really helpful, I think, for, for anybody, not just autistic folks. But I think we're going to see a little more upset then. And that's going to be generalized, whether it's something they value and care about or not. And so part of my differentiation is just thinking how selective it can be to uh, a person in terms of the dimmer. Like, I'm putting all my energy here. I could care less if this gets stopped over here. Like, yeah. th these are the things I don't want to get stopped, and there's just not enough time to get through all of them, right? Yeah. Would that be a fair distinction? Yeah, I, I think that is, and that's how I look at it as well. Like, I, I think you gave a good example of, like, somebody with ASD is going to have more general difficulty with transitions and being thrown off by changes more generally. Whereas somebody with OCPD, I, I like to think of it as, like, when it comes to time, they can be miserly with like, how do I spend my time? And so they are feeling like I can't waste it because I have like too many things to do. And so changes in their schedule, they might either view from a moral standpoint as like, that's just wrong. Like, how could you cancel on me? Or they might feel like, you know, so burdened by all of this backlog of stuff they have to do mm -hmm. that like, I can't afford to like have any changes. So, so it is, it feels different in that, the, the function ultimately is about the things that they care most about, like if it affects their work or affects like their projects. And so the changes in schedule are, are hitting them differently. And yeah. so this listener, I think, listed some examples from the pops and is wondering like, oh, but doesn't that sound like 
ASD versus OCPDI. When you create a measure, you take a, a large pool of items and then you test them in a very big sample, yeah. uh, in a community-based sample. And then you do a series of statistical analyses to see which ones cluster together and which ones are most related to the construct. And so what we arrived at the final set of POPs items, because these were the strongest indicators of OCPD, but it doesn't mean that they can't also be signals of other things. It's just that when you take the measure in totality, the items themselves break down into separate subscales as well as this total score. So you can't really interpret a single item. You would look at how they cluster. Yeah. And also, I think I'm just thinking for my kids, like, if they were of age, they're too young to be, uh, and we talked about this on the last episode, but that we generally try not to diagnose children with personality yeah. disorders. And part of it is just normal development. But in terms of, let's say they were grown adults at this point, and we did a POPs measure, and it wasn't actually OCPD, but they scored on OCPD, and it's really just a manifestation of their autism. I think, right. again, because the treatment for OCPD is value-driven. And it's about, and as we even talked earlier, even with the spoons theory, the autistic community, a lot of people really, really connect with that theory because they have difficulty, whether it's needing to fit into more neuronormative expectations or just feeling burnout. There is a lot of parallel, I would say, mm -hmm. in learning how to manage and budget your energy. And yeah. so, again, what we call it, and while those terms and the diagnostic properties and the research is important, if we look at overall what's our point in therapy, it's not to change the person. It's to help yeah. them feel like they can get through life and conquer and participate in the things they value. And learning strategies that can help them not completely feel wiped out and unable to get to things that they do value. And so I think in that sense, though people, again, there's such a stigma with personality disorders. I think either way, it's just pointing to these are things that I could benefit from learning how to dim or prioritize and budget my energy accordingly. So yeah. I don't think that it's it, it's unhelpful because even if you're like, but that's not really OCPD, is it? No, whether it is or isn't, we want to help people in their suffering. That's we don't want to miss the forest through the trees. So what they're saying yeah. is I can't with these things. There's just too many of them and I'm I'm exhausted and I can't. Our job isn't to be like, but what name shall we call it? I mean, it's like our job is to be like, hey, I hear you and you matter. And let's see how we can budget how we can think about this and prioritize what's going to allow you to participate and access these different areas of your yeah, life. The principles of CBT can be helpful to, to all of us, you know, regardless of whether you have a mental health condition or not. And so being able to learn flexibility and being able to uh, tolerate your own discomfort is, is going to be helpful no matter what. So so yeah, I agree. There's like a universality to like to these concepts. Right. Yeah. So it's like even if it's one or and both, like, yeah, there's there's hope. I think that's ultimately these strategies can be helpful in any of those settings. So yeah, I think that's a really great point. Next question. This is from another colleague. 
I am curious to know Dr. Pinto's view on using RODBT. So we've mentioned DBT a couple of times as dialectical behavioral Uh therapy, just for anybody new to the acronym. Um, But even just a little bit ago, Dr. Pinto, you were talking about radically open dialectical behavioral therapy, which is what RODBT is. But this person was interested in knowing about using RODBT in over-controlled presentations of OCPD when there is also OCD. This is this is like a very dense question, y'all. So stick with us, fam, if you're like, what? What? There are lots of letters. <laughs> okay. But how does he manage the balance of approaching OCPD experiences with an attitude of openness to learn about the self in order to instill more flexibility? Wouldn't that potentially just incite more doubts and make OCD worse? All right. So simple little question there, right? Yeah. Let me break it down because I think that there's several components to this question. Yeah. Uh, First, first thing is, you know, generally what I'm reading here is that this person wants to know, how do you treat OCD when OCPD is present? Like that, that's, let's just start there. So, and I, and I think that's a, a fundamental question because we know that these traits show up a lot in OCD. So OCPD traits can interfere in an individual's response to OCD treatment, particularly ERP. How? Because people with OCPD will get really fixated and perseverate over whether they're doing the ERP correctly. They're going to ask lots and lots of questions about the details of like how the homework should be, how the exposure should be conducted, whether it's in session or at home they're going to be less likely to generalize the exposure to other areas of their life. They may be more likely to drop out of ERP because they feel like the treatment is not progressing perfectly. They also may have more difficulty in terms of aligning with the therapist because of trust, because of judging whether they're an expert. So for all those reasons, you definitely want to be aware of whether there is perfectionism, rigidity, and these other OCPD traits present in your OCD patient. So what to do about it? So what I typically will do is I will talk to the individual about their OCPD traits, give them education about it, be transparent about how these traits are also affecting their life and how those traits can get in the way of OCD and complicate OCD. And what I also find to be helpful is to work on flexibility in non-OCD areas. So maybe we'll do behavioral experiments. So we'll practice willingness again, in non-OCD areas so they can like learn and take on some flexibility prior to then moving towards the OCD symptoms themselves. Yeah. So there could be a sequencing of treatment where you're doing a CBT for OCPD as a pre-treatment, or you could integrate flexibility training within the ERP. In some cases, if it's a more controlling type, you may need to also integrate emotion regulation. Yeah. So the, 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 the next part of the question is about a specific strategy called RODBT. So for those who are less familiar, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, has been the evidence-based treatment for treating borderline personality disorder, as well as treating conditions of low self-control. And so it particularly is helpful in cases of self-injury, you know, cutting, other types of emotion regulation, difficulties inherent in borderline personality disorder. So most of the focus in mental health has been on disorders of low control or impulsivity. So Tom Lynch and his team 
had developed RODBT, radically open DBT, as a way to address over control and the other end of the high self control end of the spectrum. Yeah. So RODBT, you know, as the name suggests, really emphasizes openness and flexibility. So I have been so inspired by some of the uh, pieces within RODBT, and I and I try to integrate them as well in my practice. And so what I would say with this person is. You know, if you're using RDBT or using CBT for perfectionism or ACT for perfectionism, you really want to emphasize flexibility as an important piece to responding to OCD treatment, but also flexibility in terms of how it's going to help them in their lives. And so I, I do think an approach like RDBT can be helpful. It does require training in that modality. Yeah. And so it is a, a comprehensive treatment. So it does require investment for clinicians to to get trained in. But I think the aspects of it are similar to what I've been talking about today in terms of building flexibility and how important that is to decreasing reactivity and to being able to work on things like the dimmer switch to reallocate resources. Yeah. And, you know, just to highlight and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm if I'm not hearing it correctly, Mm -hmm. but just to highlight and punctuate that point. So in terms of building that flexibility, because I think some of the concern here is couldn't this just incite more doubt and make things worse? But what I heard you say is really even looking at those non-triggering content areas before we're even going and focusing on OCD treatment, when we're trying to build some of that flexibility for OCPD, then we can we can look at that in some of these non-triggering areas just to get some practice because it doesn't feel as dire. It doesn't feel as distressing. And right. so that allows opportunity for this, the practice of the skill that can then be generalized over as we move into more this distressing content within OCD. Would that be, am I understanding yeah. it and tracking correctly? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think that's a very uh, good way to, to, to summarize this, because when we're talking about flexibility within an OCPD context, we're talking about dealing with burnout and this reallocation of time and effort. You know, when we shift into OCD, then we're talking about engagement with fear circuitry and with fear constructs. And so, you know, we're addressing that in this experiential ERP way, but we're trying to create space and time and energy for doing that and doing it in a way where they're not going to get bogged down. So, yeah, it's, I think, focusing on those non-triggering areas where there may be inflexibility, getting some traction there can be helpful prior to the ERP. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that. And also a very great question. I know for some of the fam, they're going to be like, I don't know. There was just like half the alphabet in that. And and yes, <laughs> some of this gets really zoomed in. But I, I love that we do have practitioners tuning in because, like we said, we need more people understanding this. It's more prevalent. And then that ultimately brings more hope. So even if you're like, I don't understand the words that just came out of their mouths, that's okay. Because what we need is for other clinicians to understand so that they can facilitate that hope to you and your loved ones. So love that. Okay, we are nearing the end of our time. There's like so many more questions, but I I do like this question. And I also had one pop up for myself that if we can get to, I'll get to. Otherwise, maybe I'll just email back and forth with you on that. But this next question is, my boyfriend likes to point out that I'm rigid or inflexible, but the rituals and lifestyles I practice are important to my religion and to my culture. I'm actually proud of them. And I get pissed off at him when he nags me about it. LOL. 
I do get upset sometimes with how little time or constantly rushed I feel to fit everything in. Boy, this is really aligning with what we're talking about, right? And my boyfriend and I actually decided to do a mitzvah together recently. And I believe that is a practice within Judaism. Uh, but they were going to do a mitzvah together, and he told her that he can't stand how controlling she is when they are trying to do this value-driven activity. And she says, I actually hate that because I'm trying to do my best, and I feel like he's so critical. It feels like he's the inflexible one. And so she had listened to our last OCPD episode, and she said that she sees herself potentially having OCPD, but also... And we talked about this a, a little bit earlier in a different context, but she said also, don't pathologize my dedication to my faith. So which is it? Am I being OCPD or am I just being a good practitioner of my faith? It's a great question. Yeah. This also gets at like the couple's work that is really important when you have these traits present. And and here the the person writing in is she's actually pointing towards the boyfriend as being inflexible and critical and and he's feeling that she's controlling. So I guess to address the first part, which is about like the role of OCPD in faith. Mm -hmm. and, and we could also extend this because OCD can also get really intermingled yeah. yeah. in faith, right? I think we, you know, can all think of cases where the person has a faith system which involves rituals which then have been overtaken by OCD compulsions. And so when that happens, when I'm working with somebody with OCD who has scrupulosity or where the compulsions have become really so tied up in the religion, I try to help them separate out like what is your faith and ultimately your relationship with, with a higher power versus the more robotic, compulsive behaviors that you're doing in the service of fear. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to try to separate out that because, again, the OCD can really take over that, that domain because oh, yeah. the rituals are important in that. Yeah. So when it comes to OCPD, similarly, I would try to look at in this individual and, and her faith, how are you practicing your faith relative to people in the same subgroup, in the same religious cultural group? And are you participating in the faith-based rituals in a way that's different or in a way that is excessive or is, you know, highly rigid? Because then that's something we want to take a look at. Like, is this personality structure interfering in your doing of the faith? So that would be one piece. She's saying, I do get upset sometimes with how little time or constantly rushed I feel to fit everything in. So there is some acknowledgement here mm -hmm. that the way this person is doing things in terms of the dimmer switch where she's getting really bogged down. Yeah. And so I work with the person on that piece of it. And so there seems to be insight to wanting to change that. Mm -hmm. So I would look at how is this involved in your faith? And I would totally validate like your faith is something that is special to you is important to you we're not looking to interrupt your relationship with the higher power but we're wondering like is it happening differently for you because of personality traits relative to somebody in the same subgroup uh, but it also sounds like here that so they would benefit from some couples work to better improve how they're relating to each other because there is 
uh, criticism going on back and forth about aspects of themselves that are tied to personality. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because also, and I, I don't know how long this couple has been together, but at the same time, this dynamic can emerge in any given area, not just within OCD or OCPD, but where we can get fed up with some of the cyclical problems that we deal with in a relationship dynamic. And so not only inflexibility in terms of feeling like inflexibility can show up, but sometimes our tolerance, even if somebody's doing something very reasonably, if we're like already just like so burnt out on this dynamic, mm-hmm. then sometimes any participation in the can we do it this way or I would really like if we do this or wait, no, that way can automatically kind of shut down the other person. And so, again, that speaks to the benefit of having therapy, having somebody, an objective source come in and help you guys hear one another, because it sounds like neither of you are really feeling heard. Also, I love that you highlighted the insight. And I think, again, we touched on this during the last episode, but something unique for folks with OCPD is often they can look at the symptom presentation and go, oh, yeah, I totally, that's like me. Yeah. I, I can see myself in it. Within OCD, mm-hmm. the, the insight is, is a lot more murky. And, and it's not to say that this is going to be the, the case across the board in all areas, that we're just going to have perfect insight about what's going on. But I think it's a real strength to build on. That's your carrot. That's your motivation of like, hey, I'm asking this question enough that I think there could be something that would make this feel better and I can still maintain my faith, right? And and so I love the question and and that they were able to ask it. All right. So I know that we are about at time. There were so many more questions. I feel like I could talk for hours and hours over these questions because they're so interesting and I've really appreciated the feedback. I wonder, though, if I can ask this question in closing. This is just one that popped up in my brain as Mm -hmm. we were talking about neurodivergent processing. Are you familiar with pathological demand avoidance? I'm not, no. Okay, this is going to be interesting. All right. So PDA, which here in the Midwest is also what we call public displays of affection, y'all. <laughs> not, talk- <laughs> not talking about that PDA, but PDA is an emerging presentation of processing that, again, within the autistic community has felt very validating and clicked well but also outside of the autistic community. And PDA talks about pathological demand avoidance. So when somebody wants you to do something, whether it's a demand, like do this right now, clean up your room, maybe a parent to a child, or whether it's even a request, like where do you want to eat? The, the person can go into this fight, flight, or freeze mode, this kind of increased distress in response to the demand. And it's really this heightened distress response. But how it presents to other people is maybe ignoring, maybe anybody who's a parent (laughs) tuning in knows when, especially when kids are younger and they kind of turn into a wet noodle to avoid something. They're like, and you're like, come on, come on, you know. But a lot of these strategies, we can see this and hear this feedback from schools often. You can see this in work sometimes. Like they are just insisting on not answering. They're actively ignoring me. They're Or they're engaging in a debate to further avoid this response. Mm -hmm. And so there's been developing study and, and research coming about PDA. And I could see some overlap. Yeah. 
between our conceptualization of PDA and OCPD in terms of in PDA, it's really that nervous system clamping down and having a freeze moment or, or, yeah. a, or a flight moment. But we can see some of that and it, it is different, but I would imagine that there is some amount of overlap. So I would be curious. It sounds like it's a newer concept. And I do think it is emerging. I will not be surprised if we see it represented in future manuals and, and mm -hmm. diagnostic category. But was just curious if you had heard of that. I can see if somebody has uh, this maladaptive like uh, rigidity that we talked about today, this demand coming from someone else, a way of doing something or looking at something that is different from my worldview it will create that tension and, you know, you could have a uh, backlash or some kind of freeze or debating, ignoring. So I, I think it, it's, it's certainly relevant to the, the kind of cognitive rigidity that I will see in individuals with OCPD where like that doesn't fit. And so you're coming at me with this thing and there, there's going to be like a distress response because it doesn't compute or it doesn't gel with the way I see the world. So I could see that being something that could either lead to conflict or lead to an outright rejection or some other types of interpersonal problems. And so, so yeah, that's a, that's a construct that I've, I've not looked into, but I, I can see the relevance and that's something I'd like to learn more about. Yeah, it's really been fascinating and I've seen it. I, I've seen it in children and adults. And it's really, I think, validating again. And and so a couple of the things I brought up between Spoon Theory and that, like I, I'm I'm all zoomed into the autistic community and learning yeah. as much as I can to be an ally and a help and a resource. But yeah, it's been some interesting learning and I've found it to be just fascinating. And so I was like, huh, actually, I could see that I could see how this could fit with OCPD. Yeah. So and, and you know what? I love it. We get to be curious together. We get to have these conversations, whether it does fit in the end or not. It only benefits us to wrestle with and chew on some of these different ideas. So yeah. thank you so much. Anthony, for coming. This was so good. I mean, I'm sure I'll continue to get questions. I'll probably get more questions as a result of this episode, but maybe another time we can even like get together and, and field some more questions because I think this yeah. is going to be so helpful for people. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nicole. Just, you know, having me back on. This is a topic that I, I care so much about. I really want to try to raise awareness in individuals uh, with OCPD as well as in clinicians. So, Having these conversations is so important towards that aim, and I'd be more than happy to come back and continue this conversation to continue to answer questions because that's so important in terms of learning and yeah. helping people get a better handle on this. So so thanks for all the work you're doing. Uh, and you too. And, and you really are the expert in OCPD, but you're so helpful and humble and approachable, and I just appreciate how you are not only treating the community there at Northwell and doing so much to raise awareness, but even for the fam here. So appreciate your time and yeah, wish you a, a good holiday season here and, and all the things and look forward to chatting again sometime in the future. Thank you. Thank you for thoughts. All right, fam. Whew, you missed the frog voice, didn't you? No, no. It's okay if it's jarring for you. You have permission to be like, bleh. 
So we had many questions submitted, and we got to cover some of them. But there's still more here and probably more bubbling up inside of you. I know they are for me. So you heard it. Anthony's game for coming back and continuing this conversation. So we'll set something up in due time. But please feel free to send me your questions or responses over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com and check out this episode's blog while you're there to get all the resources and info we discussed during this episode. Also, fam, I happened to just spy with my little eye this week that Anthony announced a postdoctoral fellowship position with a full-time focus on OCD and OCPD for those currently on internship or who expect to complete their PhD or PsyD in psychology prior to September 2024. So if you fit that bill and you're excited and inspired by everything you've been hearing and learning and you want to be a part of this hope-filled wave of research that is needed, Check out the Northwell Health OCD Center regarding an application. And replay fam, if you're listening to this post-September 2024 and you're like, crap, I I was interested in that and I want to know more. Well, you can still go check out what work is going on over at Northwell Health OCD Center or remember OCPD.org to find out what opportunities are available because I guarantee the work will still be before us no matter when you're hearing this. So check that out if you're interested in getting involved. And lastly, for my intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of this show, I want to challenge the family with this. If you're part of the 68% of the fam that originally found us through this interest of learning more about OCPD, or to even our broader family here that has been tuning in at large, because, hey, we're family, and that means we do life together. I want to challenge you to think of someone, somebody, maybe a whole organization even, that could benefit from the learning and the resources shared in this episode. Before our 999% plus report, Anthony and I wondered if this episode would be even more helpful for folks as we discuss some really important questions. And now I don't think I can even comprehend the proliferation of growth that would be happening if we somehow topped the 999% plus from this episode. But ultimately, fam, it's not even about me. It's not even about Anthony insofar as it's about you, your sisters and brothers, your spouses and parents, children or roommates. It's about your therapists. It's about you researchers across different cultures and across different countries, this entire globe, accessing hope. So if you would, whether it's sharing a social media post or texting this to a friend, maybe it's leaving a five-star review so the fam can pop up in those algorithms just a bit more. If you'd be willing, share this information. Because knowledge is power. And these conversations beget more awareness and more hope. And also, check out OCPD.org as well to learn more about the work being done and what's on the horizon for our OCPD warriors. And with that, fam, I'll bid you adieu. Thanks again for your steadfast support of our OCD and OCRD family community. We sure are better together. Froggy out. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For 
more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like chatting OCPD with the prestigious Dr. P. That's right, I went there. And you can too.